Our second reading comes from chapter 4, starting at verse 14. It starts with therefore, so I'll actually read the last of the, yeah, last week's reading. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who have gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in manners, matters relating to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. No one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions without cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here. My name's Tim. As you might have just heard Jim call out, I think it was Jim, was it? Yeah. Uh, I'm the pastor here at New Life. Uh, Let me pray for us as we start. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your word. Help us this morning to receive it with joy and thanksgiving, that it might sink deep into our hearts and transform us. Amen. Help in our time of need. It's a wonderful thing to receive, isn't it? Help. Uh, It's comforting to know that 
when you need it most, there are people that you can count on who will lend a helping hand. We found ourselves in need of help on Christmas Day, and I think it was 2021, it might have been 2020, who knows, those years, whatever. Um, We had plans to travel to Wagga on Christmas Day to spend Christmas with my family, but we were waiting for COVID test results to come back before we could go. So we were on our own, on our own at home with hardly any food in the house on Christmas Day of all days. But it was actually the Pellows who came to our rescue. Uh, Trent and Megan, uh, they, when they heard about our situation, they empathised with us uh, and dropped over a generous amount of food and drink from their own family Christmas for us to enjoy. Their kindness and generosity improved our mood somewhat, let me tell you that. And when we were able to travel to Wagga later that evening, when the results came back, we left in good spirits. It was encouraging to receive their help. And there are times when we all need help. We can't live without help. Uh, It might be emotional help that we need or practical help. Someone who listens, someone who cares. In the journey of life with the challenges we face... We all need help. Everyone needs help. It's part of being human, isn't it? We can't do life on our own. And that's true following Jesus, isn't it? We need help. Help to press on. It's hard to stay focused. It's easy to throw in the towel. It's not easy to keep going. You don't need to be a Christian for very long to realise that, do you? There are snares and entanglements. There's opposition and hostility. There are temptations and discouragements and disappointments that heap up one after the other. There are dangers that we face almost every day. We can't do it on our own or in our own strength. We need help in our time of need, help to persevere through trials, help to press on. And the wonderful thing we see in our passage this morning is that help is at hand. There's one we can count on in our time of need. And you know what? To be honest, I haven't had a great week. It's been a tough week. But this passage is exactly what I needed. It's been so encouraging and comforting for me, and I hope that it is for you too this morning. Uh, So let's get into it. Have your Bible open with me at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And did you notice another call to action? Another command encouraging us to press on. We've already been urged to pay careful attention to what we've heard, chapter 3, verse 1, to fix our thoughts on Jesus, chapter 3, verse 13, to encourage one another daily, chapter 4, verse 1, to make every effort to enter God's rest, chapter 4, verse 11. Now here, in chapter 4, verse 14, we're, we're urged to hold fast. Hold firmly to the faith we profess, it says in verse 14. But we need encouragement, don't we? It's not easy to hold fast. 
It's not easy to cling to the faith that we've heard, the message about Jesus, who He is and what He's done and who we proclaim Him to be. It's, it's hard to hold on to that sometimes. We can't do it relying on our own strength and the good news is we don't have to. We don't have to. Can you see where our help comes from? Can you see what encourages us? Let's read the whole verse now, chapter 14. Sorry, not chapter 14, that's a fair few weeks away just yet. Chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. The writer of Hebrews is picking up on what he's already said about Jesus back in chapter 3, verse 1, the one whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Our help comes from him, from him. Because the thing about Jesus is he's not just any run-of-the-mill high priest. One word there is pretty significant, isn't it? He's our great high priest, our great high priest. And you know, it struck me this week for the Hebrews, for the Hebrews to press on, Jesus' high priesthood was the key thing about him to know and love if they were to keep going. The key thing, Jesus' high priesthood. Chapters 5 all the way through to 10, it's, you know, it's there right at the centre. And it got me thinking, how well do we, today, know and love our great high priest? Maybe you don't know what a high priest is. Or maybe you don't think you need one. Maybe for you, priests belong in the primitive past. But humanity's progressed and, and we've moved on from temples and sacrifices and stuff like that. If any of that's true for you, it might be that you don't appreciate the seriousness of your sin, or it could just be that you don't know your Old Testament as well as you could. We'll come back to these verses at the end of chapter 4, towards the end. That's where we're going to land this morning. That's where we're going, to these verses at the end of chapter 4. But to uh, to help us appreciate just how great our High Priest is... We're going to jump into chapter 5 now. And in chapter 5, the author takes us back to the Old Testament. And we see a comparison, a comparison between high priests in general from the Old Testament and Jesus, our great high priest, specifically. So, comparison between high priests in general and with Jesus, specifically. And there are three important facts that qualified every single high priest. And the writer of Hebrews wants us to appreciate each one because each one will show us just how great Jesus is as our great high priest. Now we're looking at verses 1 to 10 and we'll be jumping around a little bit, so it would be good if you can have your Bibles open and your minds engaged. Verses 1 to 10 of chapter 5, high priest fact number 1, every high priest was selected. Do you see it there? Chapter 5, verse 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God. 
And further down in verse 4, jump down to verse 4, and no one takes this honour on for himself. No one takes this honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. Aaron, the first high priest. See, in the Old Testament, every high priest was selected from among the people of God. It was a bit different from how we find a job. You, don't, you didn't apply for the high priest role in ancient Israel. You didn't look for the position on a job website and think, that looks like a good fit for me. I might go for that high priest job. It wasn't like that. God appointed you. And that's impressive, isn't it, being selected? It's an honour, isn't it, to be chosen for an important role, like to be elected as the Prime Minister? That'd feel pretty good, wouldn't it? To be selected as Australia's Test Cricket Captain? That's impressive. To be chosen to lead a team at work? It's impressive. Now, if it's impressive being selected by people then how much more impressive is it to be selected by God? To be the mediator, to be the representative for the people to God, to to be the one that God uses to make it possible for a relationship to be there between God and His people. Every high priest in the Old Testament from Aaron onwards was selected by God. That's the first thing that qualified them for the role. And Jesus met that qualification. Jesus met it. He was selected by God. But here's the thing, His selection as High Priest was so much greater. So much greater. Have a look at verse 5, down in verse 5. In the same way, so just like God chose the Old Testament high priest, in the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But here's the difference. But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. What makes Jesus' high priesthood greater? It's that he wasn't just selected as high priest. Do you see that? That's the meaning of that title, Son of God, that he was appointed king as well. Appointed king as well. God's chosen forever king. And and the two quotes from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 drive that point home, don't they? You are my son. Today, I have become your father. You see, God never said to any other high priest, you are my son, I am your father. But God said it to Jesus at his baptism. The point is, Jesus is greater. And you actually see it right back in verse 14, when Jesus is identified as our great high priest, and he's also described as the son of God. Now, if you're wondering about that reference to the strange name Melchizedek, stay tuned, keep reading along if you like over the next few weeks because the writer is going to come back and take up that question in chapter 7. So I'm not, well, I'm kind of ignoring it a bit today, 
but not entirely. For today, what we need to know most is that Jesus far outshines any other high priest because God appointed him to be both high priest and his forever king. But the comparison continues with high priest fact number two, and it's all about what they were selected for. Sacrifice. You can see it back in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, where every high priest was appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. See, what we discover in the Old Testament is that God's people had the privilege of the Lord God Himself dwelling in their midst. But the problem was how sinful and imperfect people could approach a holy God. How how could sinful, imperfect people have the holy God dwelling with them? How could that work? Sinful people can't approach a holy God. Well, not without their sin and their guilt and their shame and their uncleanness having been dealt with first. And that's where the priest came in to offer sacrifices. It was the high priest's main job. There wasn't like a massive portfolio for the high priest and he didn't get out much. He was pretty much at the temple all the time. Which makes it really interesting that Jesus went, ascended to the heavens in chapter 4. Anyway, I'm getting distracted. Um, The high priest's main job on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, was to offer those sacrifices on behalf of the people. And that made it possible to have a relationship with God. So how does Jesus compare? Well, he too offered a sacrifice, didn't he? We've remembered it this morning, dwelt on it, considered it. Because his sacrifice, we remember his sacrifice, not the sacrifices of other high priests in the Old Testament, we remember his sacrifice because it's infinitely greater, isn't it? You see it in verse 9, look at verse 9. He, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. How effective was Jesus' sacrifice? Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. It's a fantastic phrase, isn't it? The source of eternal salvation. Jesus' sacrifice was so much better, is so much better, so much more effective because you know what? As the ultimate high priest, he offered the sacrifice of himself. This is so important, so important that the author's going to take it up again and again and again, all through chapters 8, 9 and 10, when we get there. And that's because when Jesus died on that cross, he dealt with our sin completely. No more sacrifices needed. He opened up a way for sinners like you and I to draw near to God, to be forgiven and cleansed. It was the perfect sacrifice once for all. So what's so great about Jesus being our high priest? He was selected by God to be both priest and king and he offered the perfect sacrifice in our place. But there's one final fact about high priests that the writer wants to draw our attention to. 
And when it comes to Jesus being our helper, this one is so important, okay? So important. So High Priest fact number three, empathy. Empathy. Have a look at chapter two, not chapter two, verse two of chapter five. Some of you were like madly flicking back to chapter, no, you weren't. Uh, Chapter five, verse two, speaking about the Old Testament high priests, this is what it says, he's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. See, the high priests offering sacrifices for sins, those high priests were, of course, sinners themselves. And here's what's interesting. It wasn't all bad, because it meant that they had empathy with the people they represented. In other words, the high priest understood the weakness of others because he shared in that same weakness as a sinful human being. He understood how easily it was to slip into sin. He understood how easy it was to wander away. And so he was able to empathise with them and deal gently with them. Now, you might be thinking, hang on a second, I get that, but Jesus never sinned, did he? So how could he be greater at empathising with sinners if he didn't sin? It's a good question, isn't it? And here's the really amazing answer the passage gives us. The sinlessness of Jesus doesn't make him less able to empathise with us. It makes him more able to empathise with us. Have a look at verse 7 of chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learnt obedience from what he suffered. Jesus knows what it's like to live life in this broken and fallen world. Jesus knows what it is to suffer throughout his life and especially as he approached his death. In the words of verse 7, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to God. Jesus knows what it is to be shamed and embarrassed, to be misunderstood and falsely accused. He knows what it is to have his closest friends abandon you when you need them most. He knows what it is to be scared, fearful, full of dread. Jesus truly knows. And we read in verse 8 that although he was a son, he learnt obedience through what he suffered. It's a strange sounding phrase, isn't it? Learning obedience... But it's not that Jesus began in disobedience and learnt obedience later. No, he never disobeyed. But what Jesus learnt in suffering is what obedience to God involves. 
Jesus learnt what obedience to God in a fallen world is all about. He knows. And what's more, Jesus knows what it is to be tempted, doesn't he? In fact, Jesus felt temptation as acutely as we do. Actually, more acutely. Jesus would face temptation of an intensity that we cannot imagine. C.S. Lewis pictures the struggle against temptation as like a person walking against a strong wind. This is what he says, C.S. Lewis, you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we fight it. And so can you see how Jesus' obedience and the fact that he never sinned despite being tempted actually makes him able to more empathise with us? Because unlike us, Jesus is the man that never gave in. He kept walking against that strong wind all the way to his death. He never lied down against the wind of temptation. And because he never lied down, because he didn't yield to temptation, he's the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Do you see it? Jesus' sinlessness doesn't make him less able to empathise with us. It makes him more able to empathise. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? That any testing we might face is nothing compared to what Jesus faced. He knows. Isn't it a wonderful thing that Jesus... Like, he's not in some ivory tower disconnected from us in our tempting and our suffering. In fact, the risen Jesus, he ascended into heaven with scars on his hands. Do you know what that means? It means that he's taken his humanity and his human experience into the heavens. And he can look at his hands... And remember, remember what it's like to suffer in this world and be tempted. Jesus hasn't forgotten. He can't forget. He knows what it is to need help. He remembers his prayers and his tears and his cries to his Father. He empathises with us. So please understand, please believe that when you struggle to trust God in suffering, when obedience to the Word of God costs you, when your faith in God is tested, when you're tempted to go another way, not God's way, Jesus, He does know. He really knows. He really empathises because He's been there before you. So what's so great about Jesus being our high priest? I hope we can see it. He's the glorious high priest, the Son of God, 
who offers the perfect sacrifice and he's able to deal with us gently and help us greatly in our time of need. And that brings us back to those verses we began with at the end of chapter 4 and hopefully now we can, we can really appreciate them all the more now that we've seen how great Jesus is as our High Priest. So let's savour them together. Looking at verse 14 and 15 first. Therefore, since we have a great High Priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a High Priest who is unable to empathise with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Brothers and sisters, we must hold firmly to the faith we profess. We must not give up. There's too much at stake. We can't let go. We can't give in. We must press on, but not on our own. It's too challenging on our own. There are too many snares, too many obstacles. We're not strong enough on our own to keep walking against that wind. We need the help of our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. And so look carefully with me now at the encouragement of verse 16. The encouragement of verse 16 let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you notice the details? It says to approach the throne. And then look at those next two words. With confidence. Can you believe that? Jesus is such a great high priest that because of his sin-bearing sacrifice, we can approach the throne of God with confidence. Not with terror. Not with uncertainty. But with absolute assurance. Because when Jesus is our great high priest, when we, when we approach the throne, we find there not a throne of judgment, not a throne of condemnation. But do you see it? It's a throne of grace. A throne of grace. Mercy, love, forgiveness is what we find when we approach the throne of grace. And on that throne of grace, we find our great high priest who empathises with our weaknesses. And so we can come to him. We can come to him and receive grace to help us in our time of need. We're not on our own. Why do I keep trying to do it on my own? Why do I keep trying to do it on my own? Why is it that more often... Why is it that more often my instinct when I suffer, when I'm disappointed, when I'm discouraged, when I'm up against it, when I'm tempted, why isn't it that more often 
my instinct? Why isn't it to approach the throne in prayer? Asking for help, because help is at hand. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Help is at hand. So whatever you have in the week coming up, I don't know what it is. We might have a trip to Sydney to take Mercy to hospital. Maybe there's things you're nervous about. Uh, Maybe there's just things you're worried about. Maybe as you think back on the last week and you look ahead to this week, you, you dread what's to come. You know it's going to be a struggle. You know you're going to struggle to stay faithful to Jesus. You're not on your own. You're not on your own. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Gracious God, we approach you now with confidence and we ask for your help. We are frail, we suffer, we're tempted in all kinds of ways. But thank you that we have such a great high priest who's forgiven us. Thank you that in him we can approach you with confidence, with assurance, knowing that you help us in our time of need. And so enable us this week, enable us to have that instinctive response when faced with trouble or suffering or temptation, that instinctive response to come straight to you, approach you in prayer, because that is the privilege that we have because of what Jesus has done. Amen.